Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. And Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry. And on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show. And Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed. And if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And today is an extra special day at Close Talking. We are joined by uh, an esteemed guest, the poet uh, and writer, Michael Kleber Diggs. Uh, Welcome, Michael. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yes. No, I am. I am super excited to uh, talk and read a poem and discuss with you. Um, yeah, for those who aren't familiar, uh, Michael Kleber Diggs is the author of Worldly Things, which is an excellent collection that um, you all must buy or check out from your local library. It won the 2020 Max Ritvo Poetry Prize, was published through Milkweed Editions. Um, Kleber Diggs was born and raised in Kansas um, and now uh, lives just across the river uh, from me in St. Paul. Um, and yeah, and also, and this is kind of, I think, how we've we've met Michael, but um, you teach um uh, creative writing classes um, through the Minnesota Prison Writers Workshop, um, and I think I probably first countered you. You ho- you've often hosted. I don't know if you're still doing it, but the um, the annual reading um, you've emceed, which features writing from from incarcerated writers who've gone through the workshop, and it is you are an excellent MC, and I I remember uh, <laughs> vividly being like. Yeah, this is um, this is who you want to host a reading. So anyway, um, that's a bit of a side side compliment. Just you know, I don't know if you're um, you know like taking kind of people if you if you're up to host random readings, but I would I, say <laughs> I'll take the compliment with grace and say thank you. And I, as far as I know, I still get to MC that reading. We are, of course, hoping that we'll be in person next year, but I'm also kind of hoping that we'll find a way 
to do in person and live stream at the same time. Yeah. Um, I just really love how it expands access and gets rid of geographical borders and how many possibilities there are when you when you're zooming. I mean, you're you're across the river from Connor, but you're both across the continent from me. And I would like to go to the reading. I would like to witness <laughs> this incredible emceeing, if not firsthand, <laughs> at least through a live stream. So yeah, let's let's get that hooked up. Right. And Jack, we have the technology. Exactly. We have the we have it. We're, <laughs> we're we're on it right now. We're living in the future. Let's do this. That's right. We That's got right. so many G's at this point, it's like we can't not, you know, 5G, right. 6G. It's yeah, it's all there. Wonderful. Well, when we have guests on, we we have the poet uh, or the guest of of another sort. We've had we've had scholars on as well. Um, uh, pick the poem, and sometimes it's a poem they've written. Uh, and this time, Michael, you picked a wonderful poem by Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, "A Sunset in the City." And perhaps before the reading, we often do a little icebreaker um, just so we can all like get to know one another a little more. Um, and <laughs> we try to do it uh, a little on theme of the poem. Um, so for this one, uh, we were thinking either your top city or your top sunset. I want to do both. Or both. Uh, okay. Yes. And if there's a sunset in in a city that, well, I don't want to put too much pressure on you. <laughs> if you can bring them together. All right. So <laughs> my top city is probably a little boring, but I'm going to trouble it just a little bit. My top city is New York City. I love New York. Um, but I, I'm going to add two cities that I've visited. And the minute I stepped foot in those places, I felt like this really expansive sense of I could live here. Mm. One of them kind of didn't surprise me. It's on brand Flagstaff, Arizona. Okay. The other one shocked me. Um, Birmingham, Alabama, in my travels there, and I've been more than once, there's something about that city. It's hills and trees and barbecue and the people there. I just, I really like Birmingham. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. My top sunset, uh, we from time to time will take family trips to um, Hilton Head Island. Hmm. And even though it's on the East Coast, um, the sunsets there are spectacular. The sunrises are great, but I like the sunsets too and how they affect the ocean. Um, it's, it's, and it's such a calm and quiet time. I would, I would say that's probably one of my favorite places to see the sunset. Hmm. I love that. That's great. Jack, do you have a top city and or top sunset? Oof. I mean, both are, <laughs> are hard. Uh, I, I lived in New York for a number of years uh, and very much enjoyed my time there. But I don't know if it tops my list. Wow. I, I think, I mean... There are things about New York that are like amazing. And in the United States, you don't get anywhere else. Like by a very long margin, I think it's the city that has the most stuff where you're like this basic thing about New York doesn't happen anywhere else. Right. Um, you know, Connor and I grew up near Chicago and like the revelation of 
the New York City subway system that can actually get you everywhere you want to go when the L in Chicago is very nice, but that just isn't the case. Is like people rag on the subway in New York, but you will get where you need to go on a train, you know, um, or there's a shuttle bus that will take you to the train stations because the train is being repaired. You know, there's contingencies. <laughs> All that being said, I think probably my favorite, I I want to say the city, I'm thinking about the city that I most want to go spend more time in right now. And I spent like five days in London a couple of years ago. Um, and I spent two days in Berlin. And both of those cities, I think about pretty regularly as like, I barely scratched the surface. But when I was there, I really felt like I want to know more about what's happening here. And I'm not like a big city person. I tend to like more manageable size. Um, I'm in Bennington, Vermont. Shocker. <laughs> um, but both of those cities were like, there's something going on here that's like, this feels like a really good vibe for a city this size. I want to know more. Those are my answers. Feel this way. I feel like London's also kind of easy. Like it's not hard yeah. to get around. It's, it yeah. was amazingly easy. Like easy to navigate. Again, I was traveling by train, really easy by train, but I also tried to do as much walking as possible to actually see the city. And so easy you walk along the thames and like you get where you're going it was yeah it was very manageable for being enormous mm, yeah. I, de I defer on the sunset question because i am thinking of like five or six different ones and so i don't know but i do want to know what connor's answer is going to be and whether he's going sunset or city well or i both. feel like i have to do both um yeah well yeah so um definitely a nod to new york i live there as well um for a couple of years and it can't be beat. Um, and I hope my partner won't mind me saying this, but she, her, it always stuck with me, but she always said the part of the reason why she loved New York so much is that she's never the craziest one on the street. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is legit. Um, and Let's see. Okay. Quickly, New Orleans, I visited. It's, I love it. And the, I love jazz and I love, it's one of the only cities where jazz is not a dusty, like, uh, you know, almost academic music. It's like the actual sort of, um, life of jazz is like really present in that city. Um, and that is, is pretty incredible. And then sunset, I would just have to say, um, my family had a little lake house, uh, on the East side of Lake Michigan that we would go to and the sunset looking off, um, to the West of the, as the sun setting up from Lake Michigan is, is perfect every time but east coast atlantic ocean that's i'm gonna be thinking about that next time i'm i'm over there i like that um well um yeah maybe michael would you be up to read uh a sunset in the city by gwendolyn brooks yes a sunset of the city by gwendolyn brooks kathleen eileen Already, I am no longer looked at with lechery or love. My daughters and sons have put me away with marbles and dolls, are gone from the house. 
my husband and lovers are pleasant or somewhat polite, and night is night. It is a real chill out, the genuine thing. I am not deceived. I do not think it is still summer because sun stays and birds continue to sing. It is summer gone that I see. It is summer gone. The sweet flowers in drying and dying down. The grasses forgetting their blaze and consenting to brown. It is a real chill out. The fall crisp comes. I am aware there is winter to heed. There is no warm house that is fitted with my need. I am cold in this cold house, this house whose washed echoes are tremulous down lost halls. I am a woman and dusty, standing among new affairs. I am a woman who hurries through her prayers. Ten intimations of a quiet core to be my desert and my dear relief. Come. There shall be such islanding from grief and small communion with the master shore. Twang they, and I incline this ear to ten, consult a dual dilemma, whether to dry in humming pallor or to leap and die. Somebody muffed it. Somebody wanted to joke. Thank you. Wow. This is a remarkable poem. There's a lot here. Um, I guess my first kind of question is, is just, you know, what, what drew you to this, this poem or how is it, how are you um, resonating with it right now? Right. So why did I pick it? Right. Why did I want to talk about it? <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's what that. I tried to come up with a more, <laughs> a uh, syllabic way of saying that, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you want to edit out my snarky part. <laughs> no, please. We will, we, we will keep it in. That's Mark right. is very important here. <laughs> um, so first I'm a huge Gwendolyn Brooks fan on multiple levels. I mean, she's born in Topeka, Kansas and I'm a Kansan. And so that there's that kind of natural tie in there. Um, I love her writing because I see it as simultaneously straightforward. And, and I want to take care with that idea. And at times unfathomably complex. Um, I happened upon this poem, like putting together an assignment about poems about autumn. And I say without shyness that in my internet travels, I found an O Magazine, an Oprah Magazine article, like, 15 poems celebrating fall and this is on the list and I'm like well I think technically that's true I think she's talking about something else but you know it it brought me to this poem and I read it last year and I just um I'm I'm prone to obsessions and I've just been kind of obsessed with it since then I can see it as the kind of poem that just kind of burrows in after you read it the first time, because there are so many different little layers and nooks and crannies in the language to just like, almost like a, a song lyric that pops in your head later. It's that kind of poem where you're just like, it's a real chill out. Hmm. Just sort of comes to you a little bit later and you're like, it's a real chill out. 
hmm. <laughs> you know, I found right. that happening to me as I was like reading and thinking about this. I would just be kind of going about my business and then it would sneak up on me. Right. Yeah. And there's so many things in here, the use of sound, the use of repetition. Um, I love that she's taking a relatively common metaphor, autumn as a way to express the, the latter stages of our life before a winter um, and just making it something quite spectacular. I'm blown away by the honesty. The opening line is like, wait, what? Um, all Just on its own complex, like there's almost a, a sense of loss for not being looked at with lechery, which is a complicated idea, but one that also kind of makes sense. Um, Later, she's like, my husband and lovers. I'm like, wow, it's so fancy. There's, <laughs> like, there's, a, there's a lot, like we're not even out of the first stanza. Um, and I know we'll get to it, but that initial metaphor that's very familiar to readers um, at the end of the poem gives way to the last two stanzas, calling that last line a stanza that are just like, uh, we've entered a completely new <laughs> space and that seems so on brand for Gwendolyn Brooks like that she's got a really wonderful balance of of simple straightforward right there with you balanced with okay I need time with this last idea it's complicated yeah it really is it I yeah I love how you talk about that last line it's um yeah it was funny we were uh, I was reading this poem a couple of days ago with my, with Sarita, my partner. Um, and we were like talking through it and I got to the second to last stanza and we were like, and she was like, okay, stop. And then we like thought through, okay, consult a dual dilemma. Uh, what's the dilemma? And it's like, okay, whether to dry and humming pallor or to leap and die. It's like, okay. Uh, so you just kind of, you can dry, dry out and die, or you can, you know, leap and die, live a kind of exciting life for a short time or something like that. Um, and parsed it out a bit. And then, uh, I was like, but wait, there's one more line. (laughs) (laughs) And she was like, what? And I was like, yeah, and it's somebody muffed it somebody wanted to joke (laughs) and it just throws, yeah, it throws uh, a real wrench into things um, in, in a marvelous way. And I guess, yeah, I mean, maybe it's, it's too soon to to get there also, but I I like how you were discussing how it's, it's taking autumn as a, the familiar sort of metaphor for aging and, and and also the title as like a sunset of the city we see the kind of um i was thinking of which is the only i think shakespeare sonnet that i reference which for not any particular reason but just it's in my head but um sonnet 73 which is uh oh gosh um anyway the first stanza has the kind of the autumn metaphor you know whether yellow leaves or none or few do hang and it's a kind of classic carpe diem thing and then there's another stanza that's a sunset um 
and there's you know keats has a to autumn poem so there's a there's a rich thing there um and i guess i'm curious maybe before we get into the the last line and the twists but um yeah i'm curious more of how how you're thinking of the way this poem is is playing with that autumn metaphor in in fresh ways i also think of robert frost and nothing gold can stain which is just it's like reminding us to, of the cycle of life and it's all so connected it's in a way almost not even metaphorical but it, as we will we'll concede that it's like a a familiar way to talk about our life cycle as well um what Gwendolyn Brooks does it for me with it for me that makes it so much more interesting is she's not saying I'm getting older and my bones ache. She's she's really kind of connecting to that to something far more personal throughout the poem. I would say initially um, a sense of the feminine as we would think about the feminine at that point in time. Um, rooted in desire and um, partnership and things along those lines so as i pointed out i mean the opening line is already i am no longer looked at with lechery or love and her children uh have moved on they they don't need her in the same way they don't need marbles and dolls they're grown um they're gone from her house her husband and lovers are pleasant or somewhat polite and night is night uh this is what first brings us into the poem and it's it's setting us up for a lot of what's about to follow, including the use of rhyme. Um, if we think about the, the traditional autumn metaphor in comparison, it's, I am aging, uh, my time here is drawing toward an end. Um, this is a familiar path that we will all travel. Things along those lines um, and poems can be effective using that theme in just that way, but I think making it so personal here, and I, I, one of the reasons I really look to Gwendolyn Brooks a lot in my own writing, and in fact, her epigraph, a, an epigraph from one of her poems begins, uh, it's the epigraph for my book, um, or a, a part of one of her poems is an epigraph for my book. She, uh, her, her writing is personal. She's, she was writing about her lived experience and, and I really kind of connect with that too. This poem is a perfect example of that. I wanna use this standard way to talk about um, our time here, but I wanna connect it to my lived experience in a way that makes it quite new. The confessional tradition in poetry, uh, when it arrived and, and when it took started to take prominence really kind of troubled a lot of the romantics and people who uh, wanted poetry to be more connected to nature and the poet to to be distanced from the work itself and um, I have not studied Brooks's career in the way that I would like to but I think there's a real arc there it's when she's writing about her time in Chicago her lived experience in Chicago um, she's writing about herself. She's writing about black America. And um, that to me makes her use of the personal, her personal experience, first person, all of it, really effective in this poem, but also an expansive way to use that metaphor and, and to expand on it. 
something I find really interesting kind of along those lines in terms of getting a feel for what her experiences is like. And also, I think part of a way that this poem departs from some of the traditional autumn imagery and stuff is that it's more interested in transformation than like longing for summer or what used to be, you know, it's not, it's not this kind of lament for lost youth. There's an element of that. It's not, not present, but the emphasis to me throughout the poem feels so much more on, and maybe it's not even emphasis, but just the interest of the poem is in the change itself. It's in the transformation. And I think that that's another element of this that just gives it such a different feeling from so many, you know, as you were saying, it's, oh, my knee hurts. I don't run as fast as I used to or whatever. You know, it's not, it's not that level of, oh, if only I was, you know, if only magically I could be 25 or 19 or whatever. It's like, no, I'm, I'm here now, but what does that mean? And I, I think using autumn to get at that is a really interesting way of turning that around. And it's also an interesting insight into kind of the personal side of the writer, you know, like how, how is this person thinking about age and change and life stages? It's not lost in the past. It's not totally backward looking. It's very rooted in the present. I agree with that. And and she's like, this is where I'm at right now. And this is how it feels. Um, and less so, again, the aching joints and more the, the experience of it. Um, what's changed in her life? Um, how she's seen and, and everything else. I um, I completely connect to that. And, and and as she says, she's not deceived. She's not trying to see it as something else. She's not trying to live for some other time. She's present in the reality uh, of her life in this moment and presumably wants to talk to us about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. That That really... Um, and that that feeling of this is where I'm at seems to really come through like in the like in the way the sentences are like built in a way where like the, her most well-known poem like We Jazz June um, is like the most kind of verb action type poem and and i'm thinking of another one a lovely love um where there's so much longing and action and kind of uh the language and and also uh the rights for cousin vit is is a very is another sort of thing where even um cousin vit who who has passed away is like bursting out of the casket um, and in, and in this poem, you know, there's, there's like, you know, night is night. It is a real chill out the genuine thing, um, which repeats later. It is a real chill out. Um, and then like, it is summer gone that I see it is summer gone and summer gone ha is like a hyphenated phrase where, um, it's not like summer is leaving or summer summer's left it's like it is the state the the noun state of summer gone having left um and those like the the use of the is a lot and the kind of um the almost sort of like the night is night like 
the it's like yeah it is that's yep. it, it what well, it has to be <laughs> kind yeah. of thing but it's like it's that kind of it's so um yeah it's like it's a non-statement but intentionally um that i don't know it 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 really speaks to what you both were saying about like um this being like a, a real state of being for Brooks at this point where it's not, she's not doing anything specifically. She's, she's in a place and she's looking around and, and making sense of her condition in a yeah. way. You shared something there that I, that I, I'd, I'd taken note of in previous readings. Um, the verbs in this poem are, are pretty straightforward, but there's so much magic happening elsewhere. I mean, you made reference to the third stanza, which is, it is summer gone that I see it is summer gone, which is really straightforward. The next two lines are like pure poetry lines. The sweet flowers in drying and dying down. The grasses forgetting their blaze and consenting to brown. Um, it's just like, oh, okay. So we're done with like, we're, and no one leaves that stanza saying, I don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> um, yeah. And yet the prose there, the, the poetry there is so intentional in its sound work and its meter and its metricality. And um, I, I don't know that that was an intentional, like, oh, hey, I'm still a poet type of moment, but <laughs> um, I love the interplay. I love how um, she's like, even if I'm, if I'm using verbs like am and is and throughout the poem, uh, you're, you're still going to walk away from this understanding that I'm, I'm a master by this point. Just tossing point a little in drying here and there just to keep everybody, <laughs> keep everybody <laughs> aware of what's really happening That's here. Exactly like, right. That's right. Is, is, is in drying. In drying. <laughs> Got him again. <laughs> right. <laughs> it reminds me a little bit of like, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to the Unity Temple in Oak Park, Frank Lloyd Wright's Unity Temple. But when you walk into it, you walk into the like foyer area and it is the darkest, smallest space you can imagine. It's got like really low ceilings. The floors are all made out of magnesite, which is concrete-like, and the outside is poured concrete. But it's intentional because when you walk into the sanctuary, you then walk into what Frank Lloyd Wright called his like jewel box, his light box, and it's windows all around. The entire center of it is a skylight, and you're in this. It's not actually that large of a space. There's no pew more than 45 feet from the lectern, but it feels like this giant expansive lighted space because you're in this <laughs> tiny little you know, foyer before you come into it. And it feels like that's what's happening with the verbs in this poem. It's like, is, am, in drying. In Boom. Drying. It's like, <laughs> you've blown out into this giant space of like expansive mm. activity. Right. Oh, it's masterful. Yeah. While we're kind of in that same general category, um, sometimes I, and I think it's because I teach creative writing when I when I read poems and I think all poets all writers are somewhat at least part diagnostician as you're reading like you know, thinking and noticing decisions that are being made and 
wondering about those. And I sometimes will circle, um, like, what would I say if I was in a poetry group with Gwendolyn Brooks and she handed me this poem? <laughs> like, besides, <laughs> looks great. Yeah, really yeah right. <laughs> no, no um, edits. Perfect. <laughs> right. So there's a there's so many things about this poem where I'm just like, okay, wait a minute. Who are who are we talking to? And I I, I have to start with that in most of the versions I've seen after the title, there's the name Kathleen Eileen. Yeah. And I, I have tried to figure out who that was. I only did the tiniest bit of sleuthing. Um, but I, every time I tried to search it online, I kept being directed to an architect with a similar, but not quite same name. So I don't know who Kathleen Eileen is in this poem. And, um, I'm, I'm super okay with that because it's kind of personal in its way. Um, and she does that, by the way, in other poems too. She mentions someone's name and we may know who that is. We may find out, we may not. Um, but it also, I think, does, as I, as I talked about earlier, make the poem like personal and specific. And then I'm fine. I can kind of connect to my daughters and sons and my husband and, and all of those things are telling us specifically who she's talking about. And then we get to Twang They in the penultimate stanza. And I'm like, okay. The first time I read it, I'm like, I, I don't know what's happening here. Like, Connor, <laughs> I felt like when I got to that whole stanza, I've, I've left the world of it is a real chill out and it is summer gone that I see. And I'm in 10 intimations of my quiet core to be my. That's the first line. I'm like, okay, wait, wait, wait. We've shifted gears. Um, whatever promises or rules that were set up at the beginning <laughs> of the poem have changed, which I kind of sometimes argue is about probably how it goes with life too. Like our, we start off vital and invincible and all these other things. And then later all of a sudden it's like, Hey, I've, the rules have changed and they <laughs> just have, but we get to the twang day and I'm like, I, I think it's the, the 10 intimations. <laughs> That makes a lot of sense to me, but it also has kind of the presence of a Greek chorus for me, mm -hmm. um, especially when the dual dilemma comes up. Now I'm also thinking of, um, you know, celestial beings on each shoulder, one urging us toward good and the other toward, toward evil. Um, I don't know, but that, that they, uh, I, I, again, usually connect back to 10 intimations. Um, but uh, sometimes I wonder if it's it's meant to be ambiguous there. So, and then, of course, the very last line, somebody muffed it. Somebody wanted to, like, who are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, it's just like, <laughs> wait. Because again, as you're saying, you come into that, oh, this is very different. And then you come to the last line, you're like, wait a minute, what happened? <laughs> you know, like, I, yeah, no, I want to, I'm curious for, for more thoughts on that because it really does go some places. Um, and something that I think Brooks is like particularly good at is creating these very distinctive spaces in her poems, whether it's physical in something like Seven at the Golden Shovel, or it's like a space to hold ideas as in this poem, but like when we get to that second to last stanza, you know, we are in the space that she's been building for us 
in the rest of the poem. And it really goes a lot of places in there. Uh, Connor mentioned his uh, Shakespeare sonnet connection, and I made a small Shakespeare connection in here. I don't know if either of you have thoughts on this, but the whether to dry and humming pallor or to leap and die reminds me very much of like where to be or not to be goes, whether tis nobler in the mind to, um, you know, yeah. take arms and, and, I, to troubles. and I thought of Dylan Thomas mm. and wonder yeah. um, if, if those poems are in conversation with each other without realizing it. So he's, you know, God do not go gentle into that good night rage, rage against the dying of the light, which thematically at least is quite similar to the idea that's being expressed here. Um, go gentle or rage? Like uh, these are some of the options that are available to us. When you... <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah, I am in, in full agreement at, at everything that that's being talked about in that last that second to last stanza um yeah it's yeah the twang they i really it's it's amazing i but i i do not i i i like the idea of of the chorus it makes sense that it it's referring to the tin intimations especially since right after that um the poem goes and i incline this ear to tin um with the tin sort of recurring again so it's like okay um which also the fact that it's tin is very it's an maybe it sounds wonderful with intimations um and incline this ear to tin um as a metal it's 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 ordinary in a lovely way i think um but yeah and it's yeah i the thing that i'm that we've that you all have talked about that i continue to marvel at is just the yeah the the tonal variation and the image imagistic variation where um yeah using intimations of a quiet core which is like a core that's maybe her own core but it's a core so it's kind of maybe outside of herself in some kind of way and then we get a desert which um we haven't had many deserts or at all in the poem so far um and then the come which is this kind of direct address like imperative tense um and so i'm wondering who maybe she's speaking to herself maybe but um or to the quiet core i suppose um i'm getting a nods some nods there so i'm gonna go with i'm gonna go with that <laughs> um but then the there shall be such islanding from grief which is a whole nother register um of like using there shall be and then such islanding um and then, and small communion with the master shore. Um, like, let alone the meaning of all that. I mean, I, I suppose Sarita and I were talking about it. There's a, an, yeah, she was thinking that, um, I mean, maybe the core is, the, is an island in some ways, but then there's, there's that loneliness. But then there's the communion with the shore where the, you know, the, 
shore of the island, perhaps. I'm kind of just going as far as this <laughs> leads me. I have no idea where this is going, but, you know, communion and, and that kind of respite. Um, and, but again, yeah, islanding, communion, master shore, ashore being a master, um, and all of that before we get Twang Bay. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's just, yeah, it's, um, I don't know. It's, it's wonderful. But then, yeah, that, that last line, the last line, somebody muffed it. Somebody wanted to joke, which Sarita was thinking, um, so credit where credit is due, uh, is like, kind of like, well, I'm in this fucked up life and I'm getting old. Like, this is what I'm, this is what I'm left with. Like, this is my ch two choices. Okay. That's a good joke. Um, yeah. <laughs> which I think is a possibility for sure. Um, but again, as also as the, the tone is totally, um, again, just shifting again of muffed and wanted to joke is just in such a stark contrast to humming paddler and such islanding and consulting a dual dilemma. So, um, anyway, I, it's a, it's a labyrinth to kind of tangle through the, um, the kind of metaphor there, which is, it's interesting too, that, um, like in a way, the poem up to that point, it's a very, as we were both, as, as everyone was, was discussing, like is a fresh take on the autumn metaphor, but it's kind of like an extension of the one metaphor. You know, it's like, you know, the first stanza is like, already I am no longer looked at this way. I'm getting older. It is a real chill out. I'm aware of that. The flowers are dying. Um, you know, and then it ends, you know, I am a woman and dusty standing among new affairs. I am a woman who hurries through her prayers, which is a lovely, like kind of rhyming couplet. But then the, the tin intimations is kind of like a whole new metaphor in a way. Uh, and it's, it's only seven lines. Um, and yet it has like, it's just, it's really dense in in a way that's also a big contrast to the poem sort of leading up to it yeah i mean so much happens when you hit this fifth or this second to last stanza um one of the things that i notice is that in the rest of the poem there are a couple of enjammed lines um not a lot of them, and even the ones that are kind of the idea in the first part of the enjambment is pretty, it's pretty realized. You're not left suspended wondering necessarily what's happening next. You've got a complete thought on that line, and then the very first line in the stanza is enjambed. Like no other line in the poem, 10 intimations of a quiet core to be my uh, and it's the classic thing to be your what to be your what and then our eyes travel back to the next spot desert and my dear relief which is spectacular i can reason my way through this fifth stanza by 
staying completely within her quiet core. Like mm. this is an interior dialogue that's happening the entire time. There is something about it. And I think part of it is the master shore. I think part of it is the come, um, the twang they, um, so many things happening there all the time makes me also really want to respond to it as though it is coming from somewhere else. Um, from the afterworld, from the gods, from somewhere else. And uh, I, just as I start to settle into that approach, um, I really want to argue it's both and that it's meant to be both, that we're meant to feel on the brink in this kind of moment. Like we're, we're here, we're still here and we're writing poems and we're in a way communing with what's to come in, in a way that wouldn't have been possible when we were in our 20s. Um, I don't know if those other voices are ancestral or angelic or uh, what's happening in those particular moments, but I really love the complexity there and I love all the possibilities. And more than anything else, I love how much that's a departure from everything that comes before it. Like I'm just zooming along. I'm like, I'm with you. I get it. Audible life. <laughs> also the body's changing, which is super cool. Maybe we're starting to see where Sharon Olds like is going to grab it and take <laughs> off running and all this cool, all these cool things are happening. But on the level of, you know, at the end of it, like someone said, Michael, tell us what this poem is about. Like on the first four stanzas, I'm like, yeah, I feel super comfortable. And then when I get to that fifth one, I need a minute. <laughs> and a couple more laps, like, let me, let me run back through it. Um, and I love that too. Totally. I love that you mentioned all the different voices, because that is something that I was sort of stuck in a mind of trying to wrap my head around and just generally liked to sit with. And uh, I feel like for whatever reason, this was the stanza where I was reaching for like other, I don't know, like is are there allusions in this stanza? Is she reaching to other like reference points, partially because I was in the mind of like, if this is an inner dialogue of an incredibly well-read person, <laughs> you know? Um, and But also because just the twang they hits so hard uh the first place my mind went to and i think also because of the island imagery is the uh the isle is full of noises speech from caliban and the tempest which talks about sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about mine ears and sometime voices um the isle is full of noises if we have this island and a master shore caliban is uh famously enslaved by prosper on the island you know, it just felt like there was a lot of resonances there and I didn't know how intentional that might be, but it was definitely something that, that got the gears turning. Yeah. And I, I hadn't thought about that, but that, that acts. And of course she's extremely well read. And, and another thing that kind of allows us to lean into that is as Connor pointed out, the voice changes. Yeah. Um, there shall be such islanding from grief. There's another fancy verb. Is not, it's not the person who's talking to us earlier in the poem. And this is a minor point. Um, no, it isn't. This is a point. 
<laughs> um, in, in that first line, she doesn't say twin intimations of my quiet core. She says of a quiet core. Um, and that's not, uh, that's definitely not <laughs> accidental. So uh, just so many possibilities. And I think this is the thing that I probably connect to the most is that um, the, the poem just really opens out in this moment. Um, it, it went from being a spectacular, radiant, honest, candid, kind of cool look at a woman in the latter years of her life, which on its own, right? In me, I am in the poem with I am a woman who hurries through her prayers, and I'm still thinking it's an outstanding American poem. She's not done yet, but uh, <laughs> but it, it was I I'm, I was 100 with it up to that point, and then she does just like such a Gwendolyn Brooks thing. Uh, she's like, it's it's going to get complicated, and then one more time i'm going to do something i haven't done in the rest of the poem i'm gonna have a one-line stanza that ends the whole thing somebody's talking we don't know who it is like it's just um spectacular i really uh yeah this i, I after i kind of so I, I found it on the oprah website i'm just going to keep hammering that and then um i read it that day and then i read it a couple more times and after that third reading, I'm just like, it's going to be years before I'm done thinking about this, talking about this, <laughs> reading this, which is just, it just tracks. I have so many poems where I, I do that, where I like, I grab hold of it. And that's the thing for, for quite a long time. And I love how many possibilities, how many new things I can see whenever I come back to this. Hmm. I Definitely. literally just, when you said it's a great American poem, it hit me that tin intimation sounds a lot like tintinabulations. Like <laughs> there's so much going on. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Are there poems that you, cause you, you teach this um, or you, you said you've taught this poem in one. Okay. Were there other poems that you paired with this or that were like in conversation with it in the class? Yeah. And I was teaching this in a high school class, by the way, which, um, and, and I paired it with Maggie Smith's first fall. Um, and, and what I was trying to do is take, uh, and, and, and encourage the students to, um, to take metaphors that we encounter in our travels and to, to complicate them a little bit, to trouble them. And that to also kind of point out how our personal experience is a way to do that. So Gwendolyn Brooks is saying it's it's later in my life. And this is what I feel like, and this is what I'm noticing. And Maggie Smith is walking with her new child in autumn and all these things. She's like, I don't necessarily have the language to tell you that these are all going away, mm. but they're going to come back. Um, and, and how it, it, it allows us to see it from the perspective of the individual to take um, new approaches with familiar things. And the idea then is that nothing is a cliche if you keep going. Um, if you go further into it and deeper into it, if you uh, switch away from it or depart from it or, or those types of things. 
this is my first time teaching this uh, poem. I know it will come up in other classes because it's also a great poem to use to talk about sound and meter and how those things can be established in a poem and then you can depart from that. Um, you can end rhyme and not. So in that last stanza again, core rhymes with shore, but core is not the line ending. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. and, and all the different ways that you can use sound, but also um, it doesn't always have to present itself in the same way within a work that you're, you're crafting. I love yeah. that Maggie Smith pairing. I'm going to be thinking about that a lot. Yeah, and, and Brooks is, she seems like she would be such a good kind of poet to teach sound and meter with because she she's like more contemporary and fresher like the language than someone who's doing a strict sort of formal verse from the 1600s or something um but she is you know and, and in this poem she's she's having moments where it's like okay this is a this is a rhyming couplet or like um you can you can see how those elements work in a in a clear way but then at the same time she's not you know it's not like a a b a b all the way through or some right. kind of like iambic pentameter all the way through um so that seems she seems very like she'd be very good to to teach students yeah and and you know we start with polite tonight and then we go to down brown and affairs prayers um there are other things happening sonically in the poem for sure but um you start to to think that this is kind of how it's gonna go we we like that third stanza i'm sorry that second stanza which doesn't do that but kind of is on its way there uh, quite a lot, but I just love how, again, even a relatively familiar approach with respect to how we're going to use rock uh, ends up getting troubled, complicated, departed from um, within the same piece, which points back to poss possibilities. You can kind of do what you want. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It also, by the way, just because I'm in teacher mode and Connor, it's your fault because you opened the door, but <laughs> um, it also, I think, teaches us the value of knowing rules before you break them. Like it, it, the, the intentionality here, the decisions that are being made here um, clearly result from somebody who knows how they're, how, how we typically approach this work um, and, and the traditions that she's um writing within and writing beyond and, and all of those things. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's such a great point. Um, Cause it, it speaks to, I think one thing that can be, um, I haven't, I haven't taught for a while, but um, one, one thing that's, that can be a challenge about is like, what's the point of doing uh of following the rules in the first place or, or learning them. And I think what this poem does that you've laid out really well is that they, they set up an expectation in the reader, even if they're not like clocking it um, as you were saying, like, Oh, like this rhymes with that. And that rhymes with that. And um, that then when it's changed later in the poem, you're totally thrown 
um, and you're thrown in a very specific way because of because of how the the poem has has begun and sort of laid a certain foundation that then is kind of like disrupted, I guess. Um, like the that tin intimation stanza by itself would be fascinating, but I think it gets its particular charge and strangeness because it's set against all everything that's come before us before it and i think you also see that sort of the mastery of the rules being played with when you also see things like the most apparent end rhyme comes when the language becomes the most elevated like the most basic level of one kind of rule is happening while the most complex type of the other one is also happening you have to know the rules to be able to mix and match like that. You know, I think that's, and that happens at a couple different places throughout the poem, but I think that's the one that sticks out to me where like the sweet flowers are in drying, but dying down, consenting to Brown, like nailing those end rhymes right there drives the point <laughs> home when the <laughs> language elevates. It's yeah. It's like all happening at once in a, in a really beautiful way there. I'm curious. Um, you had mentioned, and I, and I was noticing as I was reading through your book, which is so wonderful, um, that, yeah, your epigraph um, is, is Gwendolyn Brooks, and it's exhaust the little moment, soon it dies, and be it gash or gold, it will not come again in this identical disguise. Yeah, um, yeah which is... Which is marvelous. Um, and I'm, yeah, I guess I'm curious just what your kind of relationship is with Brooks's work more generally and how you see it informing your own. Yeah. So really quick about the epigraph. It comes from Annie Allen, um, which was her Pulitzer Prize winning collection. I think it was written in the late 40s. Mm. Um, first African-American to win the Pulitzer. Uh, and... Um, it, it's, it comes from a section of the book from a poem called The Woman that is a multi-sectioned piece. And, and this is exhaust the little moment, soon it dies, is Roman numeral 10. So the, the, that poem starts off in Arabic numbers, one through five. And then in section five, there are Roman numerals, and I think there are like 13 of them. And this is Roman numeral 10 that entire thing is so it's a super complicated structure that that she's using in that poem when i was beginning to write poetry i mean i definitely really started to recognize the way that my voice often showed up in poems you know we emulate early and then we start to write into our own voice and most of the writing that I did before I started to focus on poetry was short fiction and never with, with a lot of training. I did take one uh, class in college and enjoyed it a lot, but mainly I was just telling stories and, and my poems tend to take a pretty narrative line. Um, my preference is to use relatively straightforward language. I'm, I'm less interested in um, complex images, um, complex language. I really like complexity and structure. Um, that, that to me, over time as I was 
thinking, could there be a place for me in the world of poetry? One of the things that I kind of arrived at is I have a fondness for, um, on a level, level of language, I certainly like to work with sound and meter and to do those things with intention and to, to part and maintain at my leisure. Um, uh, but it's the structural complexity that I really gravitate for, toward. And when I was looking for poets who could show me a way, like it's possible for me to do this. Um, Gwendolyn Brooks was one of those writers. I have to be super clear. We're really, really different. I, I don't have a lot of poems where I'm suddenly going into 10 intimations. Um, <laughs> uh, but that structural complexity really appealed to me a lot. And I also really like to write from my lived experience, um, what I'm seeing, how I'm feeling. Uh, and a lot of Gwendolyn Brooks's work gives me permission to do that. I feel incidentally the same way about Jane Kenyon, where mm. on the level of language, um, I think for the most part, she took a pretty straightforward line. Her complexities to me often are on the level of metaphor. Um, her metaphors are complicated and specific and spectacular in that way. And over a career like that, you're gonna see a lot of different kinds of, of approaches. But when I think of the late work and otherwise and some of the other collections, that's what comes forward to me. Like you can do spectacular things with language and even with ideas that are, are right there and accessible. And in a lot of ways, if what you're doing is work that's meant to be emotionally resonant, there's real value in clarity. Um, so, but with, with Gwendolyn Brooks, um, in part because she's a Kansan, in part because she's Black, in part because um, I just am dazzled by her mind, <laughs> like so many times as I read her work, and, and the, so much variation. Um, she's drawing on a, a real connection to the literary arts, um, and, and able to reflect that and bring that forward in her work in a way that I think a lot of modern readers might have a harder time doing. I think she had a lot of classic classical education. Um, but I just, uh, I really love how her heart is so present and how her mind brings the structural complexity forward in a lot of her poems. That's fascinating to hear because um, that combination of like the structural complexity, the emotional impact, and the fairly straightforward language while still being very literary is such a hard kind of combination to go for. Um, but having just read your collection, Worldly Things, I, I see it all over your work. Um, and I think particularly a poem like, and I don't know if maybe you want to talk a little bit about how you put this poem together, um, but a poem like Another Black Man Killed in Police Custody Dies After Coma. I don't even know yeah. if that's the right way to say the title because of kind of the structural elements of the poem. Uh, can you talk us through kind of putting that poem together? Because it does like very clear, straightforward language, complex structure, massive emotional impact all in that poem. Thanks for saying that. I really appreciate it. I tend to call that uh, Black Man Dies After Coma. However... Um, I, I love it when, when different versions of the title come forward. So this is a poem for, for everyone who's listening that has 
three ways that text shows up. So it shows up as plain text. Um, some things have been stricken through and some things are in bold type. And at the point that I was working on that poem, I was working in the legal department of a logistics company. And uh, my primary job was editing and negotiating contracts. And so a contract would come in, we would strike out clauses that did not work for us, and we would add new language that would show up in bold type. Uh, after Freddie Gray was killed, and, and the, the murder of Freddie Gray is the subject of that poem, reading through the media accounts, I was kind of deeply troubled by them. There's a website that I seem only to look at after a person of color has been killed by the police that's called heavy.com. And they have this, this feature where they say five things you should know about George Floyd. And at least one of those will be, this is who Freddie Gray was. This is who George Floyd was as a person. Um, and the absence of those kinds of details and other media accounts really stood out to me. So what I imagined is that a, in a way, a brand new journalist was assigned this story and wrote a balanced version uh, and then included some things about Freddie Gray at the end and then a cynical editor, um, been at the newspaper for a long time, struck out things and made it a more typical version of the news, which is Freddie Gray becomes suspect, knife becomes switchblade. Uh, at the end of the poem, I think it's uh, administrative, paid administrative leave becomes administrative leave. Um, Any time where the police action is connected at all to the result, that's kind of taken back. It's the police arrived to find that he was not doing well. And, and then they took him to the hospital and despite best efforts, uh, he later died. Um, and, and the structure of that allowed me to have a conversation um, that was important to me. And that, that for me, I also feel deeply connected to as a black man living in America and at a time when institutional violence is um, on the uptick after a period of time when maybe we had less awareness of it than we do today. Um, and, and, and yeah, that, that structural complexity gave me a vehicle for expressing an idea in a new way. And I felt thankful for that. That's, that's kind of a way that I often deploy my creativity language sometimes yes but more often in structure or in approach or in form yeah another one hearing you talk about that that now i'm thinking of from your book um is uh america is loving me to death which um and i i i didn't even i think this is to your credit and on the first read i didn't notice so the poem is uh it's an acrostic golden shovel okay um and so the the first the letters of the of the beginnings of the line spell out acrostically america is loving me to death and then the golden shovel part is that the last words of each line um for this poem are the 
national pledge of allegiance. Um, and I, when I got to the notes, that's when I figured it out, but I initially, um, I didn't, yeah, I admit I didn't initially pick up on the fact, but I think that is something, um, well, and to me, the two sides of the poem kind of encapsulate the, the kind of structural complexity that it seems like you're often working with where on the, on the one side, you have this patriotic, you know, uh, rote sort of declaration of America. And then on the other side, you have America is loving me to death. This, this sort of, you know, acknowledgement of, um, America's long and continuing, you know, history of anti-black violence. Um, and then the whole poem is kind of contained within that. Um, and it's not a form that is like so loud that it's calling like so much attention to itself. It's like, Hey, look at me. I've done this amazing complex thing, which for the record, you certainly have at its, I do not know how you <laughs> managed to compose that, which I am curious about, but um, it is, yeah, it's, I think even if, even if you're not like picking up specifically on what formal thing is happening, the, the way you've laid the poem out, you really, you kind of, it's, it's in the poem's DNA, that kind of fundamental tension that I think is really powerful. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know. I'm really curious the the composition process and your thoughts on that poem. It's, yeah, it's thanks. Wonderful. Thanks for saying that. And, and by the way, I mean, just kind of to, to talk as writers in crafting the poem, I went to the brink of madness. Like I had the idea, like, <laughs> this is, this is such a good idea. And if, I know it was just, <laughs> I know it was a Saturday and I started kind of working on it. And, and by the way, I'm like, America is loving me to death. I kind of identified as an acrostic early on. And um, it occurred to me not long into my thinking on it, that it would be really cool to trouble that on the other side with the Pledge of Allegiance. America is loving me to death. I pledge allegiance to the flag. Like that's, I felt really, really great about that. And when I saw that the last word in the pledge of allegiance in the poem is God, uh, the, the, you know, <laughs> indivisible liberty, it goes on of course, but um, I'm, I'm like, this is what I'm doing <laughs> for sure. Uh, and real talk two years later, I finally settled on a version <laughs> that didn't sound like an essay or didn't sound like, like the last thing you want to do. And everyone wants to write a villanelle that just works as a poem. <laughs> um, this is why we love uh, the waking. This is why we love do not go gentle into that. Good. I mean, because they just work the form. Other times you can, you can feel the poet a little bit being, flung around in the form <laughs> trying to trying to make it work and I really didn't want that to happen then I got to the part this is the inside baseball part where I'm like okay it's time to send this around I think people will miss it unless I point at it but you know what I'm not gonna point at it 
I, I'm not. And my uh, the last thing I it, for early drafts I had America's loving me to death the title and then underneath it acrostic golden shovel and then I'm like no. In in my work it is really important to me to elevate the idea. Um, and not the not the form. Um, I want to talk about how hard it is to live in and love and pledge allegiance to a country that's you know spent 400 years trying to destroy you. Like this is what I want to this is what I want to have the conversation with. And I absolutely want people to see it later. But the last thing I want to have happen is for someone to finish that poem and think, how did he do that? I want them to think this is a complicated, troubling, difficult idea. I don't want to be visible in that. I don't want the form to be the thing that stands out. I want the conversation to be the thing that stands out. And that was super important to me. And I'm, I'm thrilled that the editor who picked it for Poma Day did not, at the point they had said, I like this poem, did not see it. They didn't see it till later when in Poma Day, you add a little comment about, hey, the making of the poem. Um, and I felt like that was a perfect place for it to appear because you, you hear the poem, poem first and you see it first and then you hear how it's made. And I, I just to share, I got a lot of emails after that poem was published. All of them were kind. Thank goodness no one's like, get out of here or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> no one said that form, the decision to combine, no one said that. And that made me feel... Uh, really good so wow i love that that's fascinating um yeah no i think it's it's a really it's a marvelous poem and golden shovel uh gwendolyn brooks gwendolyn brooks right that's right because it because originally the golden shovels well it's the the pool Pool hall players seven at the golden shovel at the golden shovel which is a Gwendolyn Brooks poem and I, was it Terrence Hayes who invented the golden I should know that that's terrible I believe it is um Uh-oh. we talked about it a bit when we talked about uh Joy Harjo's American Sunrise which is a direct golden shovel off of the pool players yeah that's it's right. Terrence Hayes yeah yeah Terrence and um so he took the Gwendolyn Brooks poem and so did Joy Harjo uh, and made just a spectacular, it made a new poetic form out of it. So um, it did, of course, occur to me when I was making America's Loving Me to Death that it was a golden shovel and that the idea for the form was inspired by Gwendolyn Brooks. Yeah. Very nice. I love that. Shall we uh, hear A Sunset of the City again? Return to, to Ms. Brooks? A Sunset of the City by Gwendolyn Brooks, Kathleen Eileen. Already I am no longer looked at with lechery or love. My daughters and sons have put me away with marbles and dolls, are gone from the house. My husband and lovers are pleasant or somewhat polite, and night is night. It is a real chill out, the genuine thing I am not deceived. I do not think it is still summer because sun stays and birds continue to sing. It is summer gone that I see. 
it is summer gone. The sweet flowers in drying and dying down. The grasses forgetting their blaze and consenting to brown. It is a real chill out. The fall crisp comes. I am aware there is winter to heed. There is no warm house that is fitted with my need. I'm cold in this cold house, this house whose washed echoes are tremulous down lost halls. I am a woman and dusty, standing among new affairs. I am a woman who hurries through her prayers. Ten intimations of a quiet core to be my desert and my dear relief. Come, there shall be such islanding from grief and small communion with the master shore. Twang they, and I incline this ear to ten, consult a dual dilemma, whether to dry in humming pallor or to leap and die. Somebody muffed it. Somebody wanted to joke. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. At the at the end of uh, our discussions, we we often uh, talk about or recommend something that we've been either listening to or watching or reading or um, otherwise encountering uh, in the world. Um, and yeah, and no no pressure at all. But if if there's anything you've you've recently been um, enjoying and want to recommend, uh, we, we'd love to hear. Sure. Before I answer, can I say that I was so tickled when I got the invitation to be on a podcast because more than once in my life, good friends have said, Michael, you know, you're a close talker. <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> typically followed by months and months of me being self-conscious about it <laughs> noticing it but i definitely um i definitely am a close talker and, and i i am aware of it and i sometimes will remember and take a step back and if you live in minnesota especially people just pandemic or no would prefer if you don't um like consume them <laughs> when you're talking so i was so i'm like i have for, i have to do this podcast <laughs> i love the idea but also i mean to thine own self right absolutely so, here are oh. three things i'm super into right now um my wife and i just finished watching on hbo the television show somebody somewhere it's so good I uh, have been meaning to watch it since I saw the okay. first ads for it. It's as good uh, as it seems. Yeah, they do a good job. It's, um, I'm not going to give it away. I'll just say that it, there are a couple times, I probably do this too, where you want to, you wish you were in the writing room to say, I think they got it. We can probably just pull it in a little bit. Um, <laughs> yep. Just a few times. Um, but but the yeah. performer, the actors, the characters are so good. And it's what the show is actually about. It's they just handle it beautifully. And they've never exaggerated a point at it. Bridget Everett, who I've never seen her show in New York. And I, I love all things that are kind of 
working in, in anything that feels vaudevillian or anything that feels burlesque. Uh, I, I've been a fan of hers quietly for a long time. And to see her and how she performs in this is just amazing. I'm a huge Radiohead fan, huge. Um, and that, for a person of my age, I'm 53, is not at all surprising. It's just like crafted, <laughs> especially for my entertainment. But Tom York <laughs> has a new project, a band called The Smile. And um, they've only got two songs out so far, but I basically check every day <laughs> to see what else is coming. Um, so I like The Smile a lot right now. Their first song, by the way, is called The Smoke. And I'm like, all right, all right. But it's really, it's really good. And then the last thing. So I did medium brow, medium brow. I just want to go a tiny bit highbrow. Um, the Kwame Dawes Poetry Collection in Nebraska is spectacular. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I'm kind of a, a a Kwame Dawes fan too, although I'm also a little bit jealous of him because he's 59. I think he'll be 60 <laughs> in July. And I think Nebraska is his 20th poetry collection. What? There are essay collections short stories and I think even a novel on top of that and I'm just kind of like I mean, come on I saw him <laughs> I saw him read once and he also reads like poem title poem title poem like um <laughs> I'm not going to be up here all night and I, I feel like almost that that Kermit meme like this is how he would write his poem but they're so good they're so good and the way that they're working together to talk about the plains, that landscape, America in this moment, subtle and smart and keenly observed and, and just really, I, I want to say again, subtle and quiet and just spectacular. I really like that collection a lot. Wow. Amazing. I will check all of those out. I'm familiar with Kwame Daz's, like, I think he... Um, he kind of edits the it's like the new African poets yep. series, like the yep. chapbook. Yeah. Um with, with Chris Abani. Yeah. Chris Abani, right. Um, and I've yeah, I've followed that for a bit. And um, so he must he must be involved with the University of Nebraska Press. Then. He is, yep. And then he was also connected to Prairie Schooner for a while. I think he uh passed the reins to someone else on that, but prolific. Yeah. Um, a, a vital part of, you know, the poetry community and elevating other voices, just a, a remarkable writer. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Michael. This is, yeah. Thanks for having me. This is yeah. really cool. This has been, yeah, such a pleasure and an honor and um, really just so grateful to to you for, for coming on and discussing Gwendolyn Brooks. Um and again, everyone should go and buy Worldly Things from a non-Amazon bookstore uh, and, uh, or check it out at your library, um, Worldly Things by Michael Kleber Diggs. It's really, really, really good. Really good. So, 
Jack. Michael gave us some fantastic reading, watching, and listening recommendations. But what about you? What have you been up to? What are you reading, watching, listening to, thinking about, ingesting, digesting, congesting? I don't know. What's up? <laughs> I know. That was quite the trifecta. Um, I've actually, I've been, um, we're at the part of my work where I can uh, listen to more music because I, it's like the books are nearer to done. So there's less like really, really, really tough thinking. You know what I'm saying? So I can oh. like, cause usually when I'm working on my kids' books, I need total and complete silence for ultimate concentration. That sounds real. Total and complete silence for ultimate concentration. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a playlist on Spotify and it's 30 hours of total and complete silence. Nice. <laughs> if you're, if you're listening to the deep focus playlist, uh, it just mm. goes, it goes it's just silence. <laughs> <laughs> Deepest focus. No sound it, at all. It's curated silence though. It's just um, that one experimental song that's actually <laughs> silence on a loop. And it's like the ultimate work playlist. Exactly. Chill vibes to work to. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, anyway, I've, I've, I've been able to listen to more music than I usually do. And Saba just came out with a new album this year, who is an amazing rapper from the west side of Chicago, which is home to some of the best rap, in my humble opinion. Very true. Um, he has an album called, oh, and his birthday is one day after me. There you go. Um, Few Good Things. And it's really good. And I recommend it. And nice. yeah, I don't have anything profound to say about it, except most songs that he does are really good and it's really good just listen to it um i will check it out it sounds yeah. good yeah jack what's up what have you been listening to watching reading being nearby lately well it's funny you should mention chicago and rap because as i believe i excitedly texted you i have been watching genius on netflix which is about kanye west and it is so good so part of what makes it so incredible is that uh basically cameras have been following kanye since <laughs> the early 2000s uh, like before he became the person that we know in the public eye when he was like the industry's best kept secret kind of thing. Like if you knew anything about rap and hip hop, you knew about Kanye and his beats and you knew him as a producer and it traces his journey from producer to rapper, to performer, to globe dominating transformational artist. Um, and so the first episode, uh, each one is basically a feature length film. They, the first one covers kind of up to him, like, getting his record contract and it's incredible because there were cameras in the room when he signed his record contract with Rockefeller records, which is mind blowing that that wow. footage even exists. And so on some level, it's like interesting to see him being young and like 
doing what he's doing and he's trying to make it in the industry, but also like you can tell that he's kind of already making it, but just not in the way that he wants to, you know, which is an interesting midpoint. But as the uh, director explicitly says, like his idea was basically to make hoop dreams about Kanye West before he was Kanye West. And lo and behold, this would be like if hoop dreams ended with like the persons <laughs> they were following with Michael Jordan or something like it's, it's yeah. wild. Um, but wow. it's also an indication of like in creative communities, a lot of times somebody is identified as like, this person seems like they're going places. There's something unique about them or whatever. Um, you hear stories about that perhaps reflective about, you know, we always thought he was already a rock star cause he always dressed like one or whatever about somebody who ends up being, you know, the front man of a big band or whatever, or like, yeah, he was always practicing like constantly way more than anybody else, like whatever, but like it's interesting to see that that was so apparent and like everybody to a person is blown away by Kanye when he plays them. You know, there's a scene where he plays Pharrell through the wire and Pharrell is just like, this changes the game. This is, I've never heard anything like this. Like it's an immediate and genuine reaction to hearing it for the first time where he literally just like walks out of the room and comes back and is just like, what is this? This is amazing. You know, like it's really fascinating to have these moments of probably one of the most consequential artists of the 21st century, if not the most documented as they happen. Like just seeing that is incredible. And that's basically the first two of the three episodes. Um, so far, it has been a really astounding music documentary. But yeah, Genius, a Kanye trilogy on Netflix highly recommended even if you're not that into kanye even if you're not that into rap and hip-hop it's an incredible music documentary i am very excited to watch it at least the first episode check out at least the first episode (laughs) (laughs) check i may or may not recommend the later episodes (laughs) well no i'm just saying you seem to intimate that you would only make it one episode in whatever happens so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I, I'm going to watch it. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Roster Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. And the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. See you next time. <laughs>